The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. This is the record that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved." For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study, we always take a few moments of silent prayer in order to make sure that we are in fellowship with the Lord. Scripture teaches that whenever a believer sins, whether that sin is a great sin or minor sin, whenever we sin, we violate the righteousness of God, we grieve the Holy Spirit, quench the Holy Spirit, and we are out of fellowship. We must confess our sin. Confession is a matter between the believer and God. It is not a matter of public record. Whenever we sin, we are to confess, which means to admit or acknowledge our sins to God, and he will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. At that instant, we are restored to fellowship. We recover the filling of God, the Holy Spirit, so that we can continue our advance in the spiritual life. So we'll begin with a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, that in your word you define for us what the issues in life are, that the most important decision in life is whether or not we have an eternal relationship with you, and the second most important decision in life has to do with our continued relationship with you, our advance in our spiritual life. Father, we thank you for your word, which describes for us what the issues are in the spiritual life, how we are to grow, the mechanics of growth and the things that you have provided for us, all of the wonderful uh, spiritual assets that you have given to us at the instant of salvation and that you have described for us in your word. Now, Father, as we study these things this morning, we pray that you would help us to understand them, that we would be challenged by your word to recognize what a fantastic treasure we have been given in our spiritual life, that we may not treat it in a cavalier or light manner, but press on to the high calling of Jesus Christ. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Open your Bibles with me and we continue our study in 1 John and we are pressing toward the end of chapter 3. 
First John chapter 3, and we are down to about verse 21. Now, those of you who were here the first hour are getting a solid double dose on the spiritual life this morning because uh, with what we covered in the first hour in our study in 1 Corinthians 3 and what we're covering this hour at the end of 1 John 3 is like uh, somebody unloading on you with a double-odd buckshot and a double-barreled shotgun. You're really getting a, a good dose of what the spiritual life is all about, and that's important today because we use the term spiritual life, but that's a term that's bandied about so much by contemporary culture that very few people understand what it actually refers to uh, biblically. And in, in the Bible it refers, as we covered in the first hour, to two things. First of all, our regeneration, because at the instant of salvation we are regenerate. We receive a human spirit, and that's the way Paul uses the term in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. But for the church-age believer, we get something else with regeneration, and that is the indwelling of God the Holy Spirit. At the instant of salvation, every believer is indwelt by God the Holy Spirit, and he does a number of, performs a number of ministries in our life, one of which is what we call the filling ministry of God the Holy Spirit, and there are other ways in which that is described. Each of those terms, whether we talk about the filling of the Holy Spirit, whether we talk about walking by means of the Holy Spirit, we talk about abiding in Christ, walking in the light, uh, walking according to his word. All of these are terms for this, the Christian life and Christian growth. And each one emphasizes a slightly different facet of that spiritual life and that spiritual growth. As part of our spiritual growth, we have the privilege of communication with God the Father. That is part of our priesthood. Every believer, the instant of salvation, is entered into uh, union with Christ. And as part of that union with Christ, who is our great high priest, we are all made priests unto God. In the Old Testament, priesthood was a function during the dispensation of Israel of your genetic relationship to Aaron and being a member of the tribe of Levi. It had nothing to do with spiritual status. You could function in the, pre, in the priesthood, in the temple, without being regenerate, without being saved, because the whole issue of the priesthood and temple and tabernacle service was related to ceremonial activity and ritual activity, which was designed to teach by its uh, sort of an, an audio-visual, more of a visual training aid methodology, certain spiritual truths. For example, as we've studied before, in the Old Testament, if you touched a dead body or if you ate food that was not prescribed in the, in the um, Mosaic Law, such as good lobster, then uh, you would be ceremonially unclean. Now, that's not a sin, it's not a sin to come in close contact with a dead body. Uh, it may happen because you are a, a doctor, a nurse, or you're a family member ministering to that individual at the time of death. But you would be rendered ceremonially unclean, and you couldn't go into the temple or tabernacle. Now, those actions, some of the actions, of course, that did render you ceremonially unclean were sin, but many of them were amoral. That is, there there was nothing moral or immoral about them. It was just part of life. And what God was teaching in all of those things, for example, the reason you couldn't eat lobster, shrimp, or good good fried catfish, 
or some of those things was because they were scavengers. They live off of dead things. You couldn't touch a dead body. Death, All many of these things had something in common. That, one, one thing in common, that was its association with death. Death is the result of sin. And what God is talking about and, and illustrating through the law was that that death permeates everything because of sin, and whenever we're, and sin permeates everything, and whenever we come in contact with sin, uh, we violate the righteousness of God, and something has to be done in terms of cleansing. And uh, in the Old Testament, therefore, the priest not, didn't, was not necessarily uh, a believer, but the priest was a priest because simply a, a basis of his physical birth. Now, in the New Testament, every believer becomes a priest under God as a result of his spiritual birth. At the instant of salvation, we are regenerate. That is the technical term used in the Bible. For example, in Titus 3.5, it's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saves us by the washing of regeneration. It is a term that is uh, the technical term that describes what Jesus said to Nicodemus in John 3.3, Nicodemus was a teacher of the law. He was one of the foremost Old Testament teachers and rabbis in Jerusalem. And he came to Jesus at night seeking uh, information about Jesus and his claims. And Jesus just sort of cut to the chase and said, Nicodemus, a man cannot be born again. I cannot see the kingdom of heaven unless he is born again. The reason a man needs to be born again is because we are born physically alive but spiritually dead at the time of our physical birth. We are descendants of Adam, and because of Adam's sin, we have all sinned. We are positionally separated from God. And so in order to resolve that problem, the problem of our being born physically alive and spiritually dead, we have to have a second birth, which is to be born again or to be uh, regenerated. That occurs because we believe Jesus Christ died on the cross as a substitute for our sins. Scripture says that at the instant you trust in Christ alone for your salvation, you are saved. You are regenerate. You enter into the royal family of God, and at that instant you become a priest, a royal high priest. I mean, a royal priest, as a matter of fact. Uh, serving under the high priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And because of his high priesthood, uh, the writer of Hebrews tells us, we have continuously have access to God in prayer. Now, when we sin, the Scripture says that that abrogates that fellowship. It breaks the fellowship so that just as a child who's disobedient breaks fellowship with his parents, when we disobey God or sin, we break fellowship with God and we don't have confidence to come into his presence. So we have to confess our sins first, and then being restored to fellowship, filled with the Spirit, we have confidence to come into his presence in prayer. Now that is the background and sort of a summary of what John is saying in these last four verses in First John uh, chapter 3. We look at verse uh, 21, John says, Beloved, which is a term of endearment he uses to address the congregation. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And here the word heart is the uh, Greek word nous, meaning the innermost thinking part of the soul. It is, I mean, excuse me, it's the Greek word cardia, which refers to the innermost thinking part of the soul. 
Uh, it's not just it's not the physical heart, and it's not just some abstract term for the immaterial part of man, but it is used in many many places in Scripture as the term describing the innermost seat of human thinking. So John is saying, beloved, if your thinking, innermost part of your soul, does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. We put this up on the overhead. And verse 22, whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. Verse 23 states, and this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son Jesus Christ and love one another just as he commanded us. And the one who keeps his commandments abides in him and he in him. And we know by this that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. Now, this is a crucial passage and is critical for understanding some things that Scripture teaches us about prayer. So let's begin by just backing up and understanding a few crucial things about uh, about Scripture and about the spiritual life. Verse 21, he says, If our heart, that is, if the thinking part of the soul, does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. Now, what gives us confidence before God is because we are in fellowship. In terms of the analogy that uh, I've developed over the last several years, we are living inside of what uh, we call the, what I call the soul fortress. The soul fortress is what keeps us in there is using these ten spiritual skills, these ten problem-solving devices, these ten dynamics that God has provided for us from Scripture. See, what well, the way we get these is through a study of Scripture. You can compare and contrast various passages and then extrapolate and summarize these into these. Ten, everything fits under one of these ten spiritual skills. The first is confession. Whenever we sin, we have a problem. We're out of fellowship. We're walking in carnality. And we have to recover fellowship, so confession is the way to recover. We maintain fellowship, the Scripture says, by being filled with the Holy Spirit. That's the dynamic of learning the Word. We learn the Word under the teaching ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 5.18. We are filled by means of the Holy Spirit, compared with Colossians 3.16, where we are told that the Word of Christ dwells richly within us. By comparing the two, we see that the filling of the Holy Spirit is related to learning the Word of God. As we continue this process and maintain it on a on a momentum basis, it's called walking by means of the Holy Spirit in Galatians 5.16. As we learn the Word of God, we begin to recognize that God has provided numerous principles for us and numerous promises in His Word, and we claim those promises as we face different problems in life, different difficulties, different tests. For example, we may be uh, tempted to worry about certain life situations, so we claim a promise like Philippians uh, 4, 5, and 6, be anxious for nothing, which means don't worry about anything. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Now, we might be tempted to be afraid of certain circumstances in life, so we have a promise like, Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. 
Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. So in the faith rest drill, we learn the promises and the principles of God's word, and we claim them by faith. We mix our faith with the promises of God, and we claim them. And when we face a difficulty, we face any challenge in life, we face any temptation from the sin nature, when we use the word of God and claim the promise, then we stay in fellowship and we don't sin. However, if we yield to the temptation or the problem and we worry or we get angry or any number of other alternatives, then we are out of fellowship. Now we have to use 1 John 1, 9 to get back in fellowship, and then we can apply the faith rest drill and to stay in fellowship. Grace orientation is the next step or the next building block, the next spiritual skill, where we have to learn that everything in life depends not on who I am, and what I have done, but on who Jesus Christ is and what he did on the cross. It's all grace. It never has anything to do with me. No matter how talented I might be, no matter how uh, intelligent I might be, no matter how energetic I might be, no matter how much work or dedication I have, it's all from the Lord. Even the, the talents I have, the abilities I have, everything that I have is from the Lord, so I need to recognize the fact that I am dependent upon him and his grace and not on who and what I am. And it's not by might, not by power, but by his spirit. It is all due to God. So we have to recognize that growth comes by grace. Second Peter 3.18 tells us that we are to grow by means of the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. So grace is a means to growth. We understand what grace is and apply it in our dealings with people. It is foundational to love, which is the subject of 1 John 3 and 1 John 4. If you don't understand grace, you can't love. Period. I don't care how much you think you love, how wonderful your feelings are for somebody else. You can only have true biblical love if you understand grace. Well, grace is part of it, part of growth, and so is doctrine. We grow by means of grace and by means of knowledge. That's why it's important to learn God's Word. You can never learn enough of God's Word. I've heard people say, well, I know enough. You'll never know enough. You may know enough to be a baby, but remember, God is omniscient. That means His knowledge is infinite, and when we get to heaven, there's going to be a lot to learn. So a lot of what uh, you have with you, your abilities, your potentialities, when you hit heaven, when you die, it's going to be determined by what you do with the Word of God between now and then. That's why the most, one of the most important tests in your life is what you do on Sunday morning and what you do on Wednesday night and what you do the rest of the time. Now, I know that there are some of you who have to work on Wednesday night, and there are some that are here that can't make it on Sunday morning. But you have tapes. That's why we have a tape ministry, and that's why we don't charge anything for tapes, is because everybody should have equal and free access to the Word of God. And you should be listening to those tapes day in and day out as a reminder. And we all need that again and again every day, no matter what happens. We need to be reminded of what God has done for us. And we need to be reminded of what he's provided for us and how we are to use that. So we grow by means of grace and by means of knowledge. If you don't know the word of God and understand the word of God, then you can't grow. Well, these are the foundational spiritual skills. As you master those, you're going to grow through spiritual childhood and inner spiritual adolescence where you begin to learn that uh, there's some few things that are more important than what's going to happen today or tomorrow or next year. 
and that has to do with your eternal destiny. And once you realize that you have an eternal destiny and that every decision you make today is determining who you will be in eternity, not notice I did not say where you will be in eternity. See, when you put your faith alone in Christ alone, at that instant you determine where you will be in eternity, but not what you will be in eternity. Because what we will be in eternity, that is, when we reach heaven, after we die, we're absent from the body, face to face with the Lord, then at the time of the rapture, and immediately following the rapture, there will be the the um, uh, judgment seat of Christ, where we are evaluated on the basis of what we've done with the spiritual life that God's given us during the 60 or 70 years that we have on this earth and that determines our character, determines our potentials, determines our responsibilities, and the role we will have in uh, the millennial kingdom, which comes after the second coming of Christ, and in heaven for eternity. When you begin to make decisions on the basis of who and what you're going to be in eternity, that's moving out of adolescence. That's moving into a more mature Christian life. So we call that a personal sense of our eternal destiny, uh, Romans 8, 16, and 17. Then we have three more skills that are interrelated, and this is where most Christians completely fall apart. You, well, I would say 98% of Christians never make it through a spiritual adolescence, just like about 98% of people don't make it through emotional adolescence. It's amazing. Uh, over the years when I've done uh, marriage counseling, about 90% of the time, it's because either the man or the woman are still somewhere back in adolescence emotionally and in terms of their own maturity. They're, they're still very selfish. They're not, they're, they're making mistakes because they never quite matured. So, uh, that's where most Christians fail is at that stage of spiritual adolescence. But when you get past that, there are these three spiritual skills and they all relate to love. They're all part of what I call the love triplex, our personal love for God, which is the motivation. This is, as we've gone through faith rest drill and gone through grace orientation, doctrinal orientation, we've begun to learn who God is. Now we have a small appreciation for who God is and who Jesus is at the point of salvation. To the degree that we understand what has just happened, we're appreciative, we're grateful, and we have a love for God, but it's just a small love for God, like the love that, that a two- or three-year-old child has for his parents. There, there's so much he doesn't understand uh, that he really has a very uh, restricted capacity for love, and that love is based on just a, a limited understanding. But as you grow and advance in doctrine and understand grace, and we begin to realize just how obnoxious we really are to God, and that God saved us anyway, and it has nothing to do with who and what we are, then we begin to develop a love for God that is based on knowledge and not just based on realizing that we're not going to spend eternity in the lake of fire. So that personal love for God then becomes a motivator in the spiritual life, and we develop an impersonal love for mankind. As we understand the love for God and God's love for us, that becomes the standard for understanding how we are to love one another. This is the principle we saw back in verse 16. By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. 
So as we move through our personal love for God, that motivates us to apply the word in every area of personal relationships, and that develops an impersonal love for all mankind. Now, we call that impersonal because you don't have to know the person you're loving. You don't have to have a personal relationship with them. It may be somebody at, a, at the store. It may be somebody uh, driving down the highway. It may be uh, some friend of a friend of yours, but it's not necessarily someone you have a personal relationship with. We also call that unconditional love because you're not conditioning that love on somebody's behavior, on how attractive they are to you or how kind they are to you. In fact, this is what you need to master if you're going to deal with people in any sort of hostile situation. And this is the kind of thing you're going to run into at the workplace. You're going to run into people who uh, want to stab you in the back, people who say unkind things about you behind your back, people who, because of a distorted view of competition, want to destroy you so that somehow they might uh, uh, be promoted on your back. So, in, and how are you going to respond to them? Are you going to react in anger and hatred or bitterness? Or are you going to treat them with love? See, if you respond in anger, hatred, bitterness, then what happens is you're out of fellowship and it's self-destructive behavior based on the sin nature. So the only way to handle it is through impersonal love. And at that time, at that same time, we're developing a greater focus on Jesus Christ and who He is, and so we become focused on Him or occupied with Christ. The consequence of all this is while we're living inside of this circle, we experience the joy that Jesus Christ bequeathed to us when he went to heaven. He said, my joy I give to you. So we have that, that joy. And it's only when we're walking in here, inside this circle, using these spiritual skills to stay there, that we can be said to be abiding in Christ. That's the terminology that Jesus develops back in John chapter 15 in the upper room discourse. If we abide in him and he in us, then he produces much fruit. John also refers to it as walking in the light. Paul uses the term walking by means of the Holy Spirit. The issue is our volition. We call it the soul fortress because when we're living inside it, we're completely defended by the Lord Jesus Christ and protected from any adversity we might face in life. So when we are inside this soul fortress, we have confidence Toward God. Confidence comes from being in fellowship, from abiding in Christ, from walking by means of the Holy Spirit, all of which are synonymous terms. Confidence towards God, it is being in fellowship and having this confidence towards God that produces another attribute, and that is courage towards people. The courage to love people. We can define courage as the state or quality of mind that enables one to face danger, to face fear, or to face adversity with self-possession, confidence, and resolution. Let me give that to you again. Courage is the state or quality of mind that enables one to face danger, to face fear or fears, or adversity with self-possession. That means you are poised, you are relaxed, you are uh, have confidence, and resolution. Courage enables the believer to face people who oppose him, people who may despise you, people who seek vengeance, people who maltreat or abuse you. Uh, with And it, courage enables the believer to face someone like that uh, with the ability to love them on the basis of God's immutable, perfect love and character. 
and not on the basis of who that individual is or what they have done. See, what happens is normally when somebody mistreats us in some way, whether it's a major event of abuse or whether it is just someone who shows some level of disrespect or they just frankly get in our way, we want to react with some level of pettiness, uh, such as anger, resentment, hostility in some form. But when we are confident towards God, we can have courage to still treat that person in kindness and love. And that particularly comes into play when that individual is aggressively hostile to us. You can think of situations of abuse. You can think of a situation in an abusive home, an abusive marriage, an abusive relationship. Um, You can think of situations where you might be thrown together with someone you just cannot stand, someone who is out to get you. That happens sometimes in certain career situations where you are in a situation where there's somebody else who just doesn't like you. They're out to get you. They're going to gossip. They're going to malign you. They're going to do whatever they can to get you, and yet you're thrown together with them. You have to sit in a conference room with them. You have to work with them. Maybe you have to ride in a car with them. You have to spend time with them. Maybe it's somebody in the family that, that you just can't stand. Maybe because of situations with with, with um, broken homes and divorce, there's often stepbrothers and stepsisters, and there may be some, some genuine problems there, and you have to be together at Thanksgiving. You have to be together at Christmas. Yet how are you as a believer going to handle that situation in a way that glorifies God? See, so often what happens is people look at that and in anticipation they're anxious, they're worried, they're fear. They're converting that adversity into stress in the soul. And stress in the soul leads to fragmentation of the soul and self-destruction. And the way to handle that is through the use of impersonal love for all mankind and through personal love for God the Father, because we have confidence towards God, we have the courage to relax in those kinds of situations, that no matter how much somebody may be out to get us, we know exactly how to handle uh, that potentially dangerous or harmful situation, and we can respond to that individual in the way Jesus Christ would respond to them. But in order to do that, you can't just flippantly say, well, what would Jesus do? Which is so typical today with the, we, we reduce everything to some sort of trite t-shirt saying or bumper sticker. To know what Jesus would do, you have to have a detailed understanding of the scriptures. For most people, what would Jesus do is determined by some, uh, idol, some figment of their imagination that they've constructed based on some very emotional sermons that they've heard and not on the basis of a detailed study of God's Word. Remember, sometimes Jesus was put in a position where there were people hostile to him and he threw them bodily, physically out of the temple. So answering the question, what would Jesus do, isn't a matter of just simpering sentimentalism and putting yourself in some sort of position of vulnerability so you can be uh, beat up on or abused or destroyed. Sometimes it in personal love or impersonal love for somebody means you don't even get in this situation. So you have to use a lot of wisdom and a lot of discernment. That involves both prayer and a tremendous amount of Bible study and growth. It doesn't just happen overnight. We are all faced at times with complex and difficult situations and circumstances, and there are no 
uh, cut and dried a- answers or patterns that fit each and every situation. And you can only know how to apply the word if you have spent a tremendous amount of time studying the word. And that means being in Bible class week in, week out, growing, studying, reading your Bible, listening to tapes, and consistently applying it. When it, so often people get in those difficult situations and they say, well, I just don't know how to apply the word at that time. And that's because they haven't been practicing applying the word in the simple situations. So it takes time to develop that. Well, while we are living inside that soul fortress, while we are using all of those different uh, spiritual skills and problem-solving devices, we develop confidence toward God, and that in turn gives us courage toward people. Notice, don't reverse the two. Courage toward God is blasphemy. That moves from arrogance and self-righteousness. And confidence towards people is foolishness because you can't be confident towards people because all people are sinners and sooner or later no matter how wonderful they may be even the most mature of believers can fail miserably and disappoint us that's why we have to use impersonal love that's where uh, our ability to handle those situations is determined by understand our understanding of Jesus Christ and his love for us when we were the most obnoxious that's how we know love back to verse 16 By this we know love because he laid down his life as a substitute for us. Romans 5.8 says that God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Not because you were attractive, not because you had such a nice personality, not because God saw that, well, you know, with a little work, with a little effort, they they can really make it. They can make something of themselves, and they'll be nice to spend time with, and I want them into heaven. See, there was nothing in any of us that God saw that caused him to want to spend eternity with us in heaven. Now let that sink in a little bit. There's not one thing in any of us that God saw where he said, you know, I want to spend eternity with you. You're such a great guy, such a great woman, such wonderful abilities, such great talents. God said, you've been tainted by sin and you're obnoxious and you deserve the lake of fire, but... But you're created in my image, and on the basis of who I am, I'm going to provide a perfect solution, and I'm going to send Jesus Christ to die on the cross for your sins. It's not based on who you are or what you've done. It's based on who I am and what I'm going to do, and that's what real love is. That's how we define love. We don't start off defining love on the basis of of some uh, movie that we've watched, like a love story or Pretty Woman. I remember this last week. I don't know how many of you saw it. AFI came out with it. It's the American Film Institute came out with their 100 most romantic films. Of course, Casablanca got number one. I think I picked, I called that one. But see, we don't learn love from watching movies. We don't learn love by experiences that we had in junior high or high school, which, you know, surprise, it may surprise some of you, but I think I read something the other day that said that, that like 60 or 70 percent of people never get over that first broken heart that occurs when they're 14 or 15 years of age. That means that most people are defining love the rest of their life on the basis of something that happens when they're just breaking through puberty. No wonder we have such a high divorce rate in this country. 
See, you can't base your understanding of love or romance on, on, on experience like that. You have to base it on something that, that can never change, something immutable, and that is on the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is why John says it's by this, by the work of Christ on the cross, that we know what love is. So in verse 21 he goes on to say, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, if our thinking does not condemn us, because we know that we're in fellowship, we know that we've used 1 John 1, 9, we're abiding inside of the soul fortress, we have confidence before God. Furthermore, not only do we have confidence before God, but this is going to impact our communication with God. Verse 22. Whatever we ask, we receive from him because we continue to keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. Now, this is quite a quite a statement, and too often people want to take a verse like this, a promise like this, and just sort of yank it right out of context so that we uh, we have some sort of carte blanche blank check from God in terms of prayer. And that the problem with this is that, that it leads to disappointment because we ask God for certain things and he doesn't come through. And so we think, well, prayer really doesn't work. And so I'll just forget about it. John is going to come back to this theme in 1 John 5:14, where he says, now this is the confidence that we have in him. Now notice, as I've stated again, the first thing that ought to come into your mind when I use that phrase, in him, in John, is that that means abiding in him. And he's going to define this. This is the confidence that we have when we're abiding in him. That's when we're in fellowship. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Now, when we get to that passage, what we're going to see is according to his will isn't an escape hatch. See, that's why too many people use that phrase. They'll say, you know, Lord, I would like this, but only if it's according to your will. Now, they use that. They, they ask God for something, but they don't have the courage of Hebrews where we are to come boldly before the throne of grace. That's a wimpy way. God, I'd like this, but, well, you know, if it's not your will, that's okay. You know, whatever you want. And and so we use that as a way of sort of backing out of the whole uh, petition to God. But what John is saying here is we know what his will is. Why? Because we've mastered those spiritual skills. We are... We have doctrinal orientation. That means our thinking is aligned with his word because we've taken in the word. We understand what to pray for and what not to pray for. So we know that when we come to prayer, we're going to pray with pray for things that are within the context of God's revealed will, not his sovereign will. We don't know what that, that is. And, and we've gone through the distinction there. We know what God's revealed will is in terms of absolutes. Thou shalt and thou shalt not. But we don't know what his sovereign will is. We don't know what, what is actually going to take place tomorrow, what he's going to allow to take place tomorrow. But we can ask for things according to what he has made clear in his word. And if we look at prayers, and we've done this in the past, we've looked at Daniel's prayer in Daniel 9, we've looked at the uh, prayers uh, of uh, Paul and John in Acts chapter 4 and other places where we have seen uh, biblical examples uh, of prayer and how they prayed according to God's will. And sometimes God says no. But at other times, uh, when we're praying according to his will, that is specifically according to what's in Scripture, we know that he hears us. And verse 15, if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we ask of him. Uh, that is, We have to understand that in context. When we ask according to his will... 
His will is terms that are specified and revealed in Scripture. So we pray according to what God has promised. That's in, in, in a sense, that's referring to, to a, the, a function of the faith rest drill and praying to God in spe, specifically in reference to things he has promised. And then he fulfills those, those requests. Now in verse 22 we read, what, whatever we ask, we receive from him. Now the word ask is the present active subjunctive of the Greek verb iteo, which means to ask, to make a request, and the subjunctive mood indicates potential. You might ask, you might not ask. You might, uh, the problem that the uh, recipients of James' epistle had, as he said, said you have not because you ask not, clearly indicating that prayer does change things and that the reason that prayer wasn't changing anything in their life was because they weren't praying. So prayer is a potential for your spiritual life. You may pray, you may not pray, pray. But when you do pray, God will answer you if you're praying in fellowship and according to his will, according to 1 John 5, uh, 13. Now, whatever we ask, we receive from him. Why? Because we keep his commandments. Now, keeping his commandments is, is living inside of that soul fortress. We keep his commandments. We apply the spiritual skills. If we don't keep his commandments, we're trying to live life on our own. So then we're outside the soul fortress and we're out of fellowship and God won't hear us there. Whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments. That means that we're staying in fellowship and we do the things that are pleasing in his sight. That is, when we obey him, we keep his commandments. That that pleases him. On the con- on the contrary, when we disobey him, he doesn't hear our prayer. Psalm 66:18 states, If I regard iniquity in my heart, that and, and the Hebrew verb there means to perceive, if we perceive wickedness or iniquity in our heart, that is in our, in our mind, in our thinking, if we perceive sin in our life, the Lord will not hear. So whenever we sin, we're out of fellowship. When we are in in fellowship and we're applying those spiritual skills, then we are in a position where God answers our prayers. Let's look at some related passages. John chapter 14, which is in the upper room discourse. The section from John 13 through John 17 is considered the upper room discourse in the Gospel of John. As I've stated many times since we went through that section, First John is basically a commentary and expansion on what Jesus taught in the upper room. And in John 14, 13, and 14, Jesus made these same statements. He says, Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now, the key phrase here is in my name. That doesn't mean closing your prayer with a formulaic statement like in Jesus' name or in the name of the Son or however you might express it. That's not what it means. A name, The concept of name in the biblical era reflected character. So when, like for example, when the scripture says that we believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that's not simply believing that Jesus Christ had a, had a name, Jesus, and he was born in Nazareth, and we believe that, that he was a historical figure. 
Name indicates character, and character for Jesus of Nazareth means that he is the uh, Son of God, that he is undiminished deity, united in true humanity in one person forever. And because he is undiminished deity in true humanity, that he was sinless, he was qualified to go to the cross. Qualified to go to the cross means that he died on the cross as a substitute for our sins. All of that's wrapped up in that term, in, in, in his name. So when, we, when John uses, or when Jesus uses the phrase here in John 14, 13, whatever you ask in my name, he's talking about whatever you ask that is co- totally consistent with my character. That's just another way of saying when you ask according to my will. Whatever you ask in my name, that is, that is completely represented by everything that I am, that will I do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Then in the next chapter, Jesus says, If you abide in me, that is, staying inside that soul fortress, abiding in him, and my words abide in you. Notice the mutuality here. Fellowship isn't one-sided. We abide in him, he abides in us. If we, you abide in me, and my words abide in you. Ask whatever you wish, and it shall be done for you. See, if we ask amiss, as we'll see in a passage a little later on, if we ask amiss, ask wrongly, then we're not abiding anymore. And we're asking for the wrong thing, we're out of fellowship, and God won't hear our prayer. John fifteen, sixteen. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. He chose the disciples. This is not a a verse for election. He chose the uh, 11 or left here. He's already gotten rid of Judas. I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Same principle, asking according to God's will, asking in my name are synonymous terms. John 16:23 and in that day you will ask me no question truly truly I say to you if you shall ask the father for anything he will give it to you in my name it has to do with the character of Christ and asking according to his will verse 24 until now you have asked for nothing in my name ask and you will receive that your joy may be full then verse 26 in that day you will ask in my name and I do not say to you that I will request the father on your behalf. So the issue is asking in Jesus' name. Now, that brings us to a point is that why people don't pray. I have six reasons why people don't pray. First of all, people don't pray because they lack confidence in being heard. They lack confidence. They don't know anything about being in fellowship. They haven't been taught anything about 1 John 1 9. They don't understand anything about the spiritual life. So they have no confidence when it comes before God. First reason people don't pray is they lack confidence in being heard because they don't understand confession and cleansing. Once you confess your sins, you are cleansed from sin. It doesn't matter how horrible, how heinous, how how uh, how many times you committed that sin. You admit that sin to God because Jesus Christ has already paid for that sin in full on the cross then the the sin is wiped away, you are cleansed and back in fellowship, and God forgets the sin, removes it from you. That doesn't mean there's no divine discipline, but that's not what we're talking about. You're back in fellowship. Now, you may be disciplined when you're back in fellowship because of the sin. There are consequences for that sin. If you kill somebody and you confess the sin, that person's still dead. You've still committed a criminal act, and you're still subject to the laws of the land, and you should be executed. But that doesn't mean you're not back in fellowship. See, fellowship with God and uh, 
<coughs> avoiding penalty, criminal penalty are not the same thing. Don't confuse them. See, some people do that. Second reason people don't pray, don't pray is because they are ignorant of what the Bible teaches related to prayer. They are ignorant about what the Bible teaches related to prayer. They just look upon prayer as some sort of, uh, you know, rubbing a, a, a magic lamp and some genie is going to pop out and they're going to ask God for whatever they wish and take a verse, uh, take verses out of context and nothing happens. So then they quit praying. They don't understand the biblical doctrine of prayer. Third reason people don't pray is that they are ignorant of the mandate to pray without ceasing. See, Scripture says that we are to pray without ceasing. The Greek word is a dialeptos, which means to pray continuously. doesn't mean you always have your heads bowed and your eyes closed. If you do that, you'll have a wreck. But it means that you are in a in fellowship with the Lord so that you can at all times carry on a conversation with Him. Sometimes all we can have is bullet prayers, just one-liners back and forth to God. Other times we're going to set aside for more intensive prayer where we are truly uh, beseeching the Lord on behalf of some situation in our life. But we are to con- continuously pray. That's the mandate of Philipp- of uh, 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 5, verse 17, pray without ceasing. People too often are too wrapped up with their own lives, too caught up with the details of life to take the time to focus on God in prayer. Fourth reason people don't pray is that they doubt God. They doubt that He's really there. They doubt that prayer changes things, and they lack faith. Sometimes I think that that this is just my opinion based on experience. It's not doctrine. Sometimes I think that God answers some prayers of baby believers in profound ways simply to give them a sense of confidence. I remember one time when I was a rather young believer and I was working at a spiritual, working at a Christian camp and I was out on a, taking a bunch of boys out on, high school boys on a canoe trip and we were in, had a tough situation, and there was a prayer promise from Jeremiah, Call upon me, and I will answer thee and show thee great and mighty things that thou knowest not. And we had been canoeing down this river for about four days, and we were facing 20, 30-mile-an-hour headwinds. And that's not bad when you're on a windy river, except when you're going around certain bends and you really hit it. But at the end of the week, we were going to come out on Lake Buchanan, which is a huge lake down in central Texas. And I had been across Buchanan just on a rather calm day when you had uh, waves breaking over the bow of a canoe. And so I was just, oh, gee, this is going to be horrendous. Take four or five hours to get across Buchanan, and and um, and it can be very dangerous as well. So we claimed that promise and prayed that God would reduce the winds by Friday when we got there. And on that Friday morning, that was the fastest trip I ever made, that 18 miles to end up on Buchanan. And we didn't hit any wind. It came up 30 minutes after we uh, hit our, our final point. So, you know, sometimes the Lord does things like that that really seem miraculous just to give us a real spiritual shot in the arm that he is there and he answers prayer. But... Um, I don't know that he does that throughout your Christian life. Sometimes he does that when you're a baby just to give you that little uh, extra motivation, but that's not normal. Fifth reason that 
people don't pray is that they have experienced some disappointments in life, frustration in life, difficulties in life, and they have become uh, embittered toward God. They think that God never listens, God doesn't answer them, God's out to get them, and so they are in reaction to God and uh, bitterness and hostility. That's just a function of self-centeredness and arrogance and putting yourself in a place of being more important than God. And the result of that will always be self-destructive. The sixth reason people don't pray is they've sucked up fatalism somewhere along the line. Somewhere along the line, they think that prayer really doesn't change things. After all, God is sovereign; He's already made a plan. So, what difference does prayer make? But James says that. You have not because you ask not. And there are several places we've seen in Scripture where prayer did change history. Now, John says here that if we pray, that God hears us and that God answers us. In verse 22, whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. But there are sometimes we don't get our prayers answered. And why and that, so we come to the position I've got three, three reasons why God doesn't listen to prayer, why your prayers are not answered. Four opening principles. First of all, prayer is the most powerful asset in your spiritual life. Prayer is the tool that we use many times to apply the faith rest drill, to apply doctrinal orientation, to apply various spiritual skills. So prayer is not in and of itself a spiritual skill, but it is the means of implementing those spiritual skills. It's the most powerful asset in the believer's life. It is direct communication with the Almighty Creator God of the universe and the God who planned our salvation and brought us into union with Himself. Second, prayer is an awesome privilege that brings us immediately into the throne room of God and we can present all of our petitions to Him. Prayer is, third, prayer is a vital communication link to our Heavenly Father, and we don't need to break our communication. And yet, for all that, very few believers are engaged in real biblical praying. For all the talk and all the prayer meetings, I think that very few really implement principles of prayer. So why isn't prayer answered? Number one, prayer isn't answered because people are not filled with the Spirit, because they're not in fellowship with the Lord. The only prayer that God answers when we're out of fellowship is confession. Psalm 66:18 says, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. When we're out of fellowship... Our prayers get nowhere. The second reason prayer doesn't get anywhere is because our thinking is based on the arrogance of the cosmic system or worldly thinking. In other words, we're coming to God in prayer, but as soon as we start praying for something, we're immediately, uh, as it were, flashing uh, our ignorance by uh, re- offering requests that are based on pure human viewpoint concepts. For example, in Job 35.12, we read, There they cry out, but he does not answer because of the pride of evil men. See, all human viewpoint thinking is based on arrogance, and it's called an empty cry in verse 13. Surely God will not listen to an empty cry, nor will the Almighty regard it. So God doesn't hear prayer that's based on the arrogance of human viewpoint thinking. This same idea is reiterated in James chapter 4. 
James 4.2, James says, You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. In other words, they were loaded up with mental attitude sins. Lust was just part of it. So you're envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And then when they did ask, verse 3, you ask and you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. See, when they're operating on lust pattern, they're outside the soul fortress. They're out of fellowship. They're operating on carnality. They have wrong motives in prayer. And so God does not answer their prayers. Furthermore, it goes on to say in verse 4, you adulteresses, the emphasis there is on being unfaithful. We covered that in James 4, 4, unfaithful to God. You adulteresses, you who are unfaithful to God spiritually, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So when we base our prayers on human viewpoint thinking and on arrogance, God does not hear those particular prayers. Another reason that we don't pray is because we fail the test of the faith rest drill. Mark 11:24, Jesus said, Therefore I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them, and they shall be granted to you. In other words, if you're not trusting God and asking with faith, then you're failing the faith rest drill test at that point. You're, what, outside of the soul fortress, and your prayers won't be heard. And then a fourth reason that prayers aren't heard, and this is for you men. I don't want any women, none of you wives, and I have a little poise. Don't elbow your husband here. You husbands, likewise, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with a weaker vessel, since she is a woman, and grant her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Now, the main command here is you husbands live with your wives in an understanding way so that your prayers may not be hindered. When you as a husband, as a Christian, are not fulfilling your responsibilities as a Christian husband, now, you can do that whether your your wife, your spouse is a, is a believer or an unbeliever. You can still treat her. You can The spiritual status of your spouse can never keep you from applying the word of God. Now, some of you may think, well, you just don't live with my spouse. But, but see, see, nothing, no one, no human being can ever keep you from applying the Word of God. They may make it difficult. They may be tempting your sin nature to react in all kinds of personal sins of anger, hostility, or whatever it might be. But the point is that, that if they're in carnality, that just gives you a greater opportunity to apply the Word. What a great opportunity for spiritual growth. But you husbands have a leadership role in the home, and when you're failing in that role, you're out of fellowship. You're not loving your wife as Christ loved the church, which is a mandate to husbands. And so you're out of fellowship, and your prayers won't be heard. That's why it's important for husbands to make sure they have a biblically-based uh, relationship with their wife. Now, you can do that without your wife responding. They may be an unbeliever. Maybe you married an unbeliever. Maybe you married someone and you became positive later on and they didn't. And now you have to deal with living with a carnal spouse. That's very difficult to do that. But nevertheless, you can still fulfill your obligations to apply the word in every situation. And so as long as you are living with your wife in an understanding way, then your prayers will be heard. And we come to John 3.23, 1 John 3.23, and this is his commandment. See, he just got through saying 
in verse 22 that we keep his commandments. Now, this is his commandment. Verse 23, and he summarizes this under a singular noun, but it's really two parts. There are two commands here. The first relates to entering the spiritual life, and the second relates to advancing in the spiritual life. The first is that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. That has to do with salvation, not the spiritual life, not spiritual advance. You don't have to believe in Jesus and love one another in order to be saved. If you did, we're all in trouble. That's works. But we've seen that runs counter to everything that John says in the Gospel of John and in 1 John. So these, the first commandment is believe in the name of his son Jesus Christ that gets us eternal life. And then loving one another is staying inside. That's just a term that summarizes the entire Christian life because it is reflected in the mature uh, spiritual life, utilizing unconditional love for all mankind and as he commanded us, and when we maintain that, we stay in fellowship, and he hears our prayers. And then we get a summary statement in verse 24. Verse 24 is a conclusion to the section preceding this and is a transition to the next section beginning in the next chapter. I want you to notice how John links and defines vocabulary here just to keep you from making the mistake of thinking that keeping his commandments is necessary for salvation. He says, and the one who keeps his commandments abides in him. So keeping his commandments equals abiding in him. Abiding is not salvation. We've seen that through all of our intensive studies of the word abiding, both in John 15 and in earlier sections of this epistle. I won't repeat that. Abiding has to do with fellowship, not believing. So keeping commandments equals abiding in him. So we're not talking about salvation here, but we're talking about maintaining that fellowship relationship. Second thing we see is that abiding is two-way. The one who keeps his commandments abides in him and he in him. That is Jesus Christ in the believer. Remember what Jesus said about prayer in the verse we looked at John John 15:7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you. See, that's that mutuality of fellowship. It's a two-way road. When we're in fellowship with him, he's having fellowship with us. It's two ways. Third thing that we notice in this verse is that abiding is further characterized by a relationship with the Holy Spirit. We know this. We know by this that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. So abiding in him is related to and signified by a relationship with the Holy Spirit, which in other passages is referred to as the filling of the Spirit or walking by the Spirit. And so, in conclusion, we're going to uh, six summary points on the doctrine of the indwelling and the filling of the Holy Spirit as two different ministries. Don't confuse these. Indwelling of the Holy Spirit is permanent. Every believer receives it. It's the instant of salvation. It is a sign of salvation, not a sign of fellowship. The filling of the Spirit is a sign of fellowship. We can lose it when we sin, but we recover it through the filling, through a confession of sin. So point number one, indwelling and filling both occur at salvation. Indwelling and filling both occur at salvation. At the instant that you are saved, you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and you are being filled by means of the Holy Spirit. Point number two. Indwelling is related to your position in Christ. 
It is related to positional truth. Indwelling is related to your spiritual position. Filling is related to your day-to-day experience. Indwelling is related to your position in Christ. Filling is related to your day-to-day experience of your relationship with Christ. Point number three, indwelling is related to the dwelling of Christ. That God the Holy Spirit indwells in us and our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. So it's related to the indwelling of Christ in our bodies. Yet filling is related to the abiding of Christ. Notice the contrast. Indwelling is related to the dwelling of Christ. Filling is related to the abiding of Christ. Those are distinct. Fourth, indwelling is related to positional sanctification. Filling is related to experiential sanctification. Indwelling is related to positional sanctification and filling to experiential sanctification. Point number five, indwelling is a one-time event that remains throughout our spiritual life, and it's the basis for all of the other ministries of God the Holy Spirit to us. Indwelling is a one-time event that remains throughout the spiritual life. It's the basis for all of the other uh, of the Spirit's ministries to us. It's the basis for the sealing ministry. It's the basis for, for all the ministries of God the Holy Spirit has for us. Uh, it is the basis for the filling of the Holy Spirit as well. But filling is related, point number six, filling is related to learning, understanding, storing, and recalling Bible doctrine for application. And it's related to learning, understanding, uh, storing and recalling Bible doctrine for application. So all of this has to do with the importance of abiding in Him. Only in abiding in Him can we have that relationship. And even in this passage, the emphasis that John has here is that if you're not loving one another, then you're not in fellowship and your prayers won't get heard. Man, that's the same thing he's saying in terms of First Peter 3. If you're not fulfilling that uh, relationship with your wife, then your prayers won't get heard. And that brings us to chapter 4, where we are going to begin next time with a more detailed study of what it means to love one another and the love God has provided for us, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word again uh, this morning for the challenge that we have to stay in fellowship, to abide in Christ, walk by means of God the Holy Spirit, and that you then produce, you produce maturity and this love in us. We can't generate it on our own. It is a product of God the Holy Spirit as a result of our uh, time in fellowship. Father, we pray that there's anyone here this morning that is unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal life, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. Scripture says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. That means that we are born physically alive but spiritually dead, yet if you want to have a relationship with God, you must do what God says to do. God makes it very clear in Acts 16.32, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. It's not a matter of works. It's not a matter of ritual, joining a church, or any other human factor, but simply accepting the free gift of Jesus Christ's death on our behalf on the cross. Right now, right where you sit, you can determine where you will spend eternity simply by accepting this free gift and believing that Jesus Christ died on the cross as a substitute for your sins.
Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we have studied today. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.